0: You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by Professor Monica Gandhi. Welcome, Monica. It's
1: great to see you. Thank you. Nice to see you, too.
0: Monica is professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco and San Francisco General Hospital. She directs the Center on AIDS Research, UCSF, and is medical director at the HIV clinic at San Francisco General Hospital, the famous Ward 86. Thank you so much for being with us today. We've got a lot to talk about. I know you've spent a lot of time commenting and thinking about this complex transition that we're in here in the United States, in which... Many Americans find themselves fully vaccinated, while many others find themselves not yet vaccinated. We're a somewhat complicated and divided society at the moment. 30%, a third of our population fully vaccinated, about half having had one dose. But then we've got folks who are still weighing whether they are going to join, some that are anxious to get to a vaccine and others who are opposed. And that raises all sorts of behavioral issues. Let's start with What's your advice to those people who are already vaccinated in terms of the courtesies and the basic rules of the road and how to behave in this complex transition?
1: You know, I think it's a great question. And I think that those who are vaccinated fully around other fully vaccinated people should feel really comfortable with all the data that shows the incredible real-world effectiveness of the vaccines, both in terms of protecting you and also protecting others. And as the CDC has said, you can unmask, undistance and be around each other. Now, when we're in that mixed company, the vaccinated and unvaccinated, there is kind of a difference between insight, sort of private behavior and public behavior. Out in public, the vaccinated wearing masks inside, going into restaurants or like going to the store, for example, I think is actually just polite because there is no way to tell if someone's vaccinated or not vaccinated by something that's changed in their face. And so even though I'm very convinced by all the data that shows you can't transmit or it's extremely difficult to transmit after you've been vaccinated to anyone else, I think it's just polite to keep our social norms inside and in public spaces inside, keep your mask on. However, in the private behavior, so where you're in, you know, a small group and one of you are unvaccinated, for example, or a couple are unvaccinated, I think it is up to the individuals how they decide to navigate that. The CDC has said that you can be unmasked and undistanced around people who are not vulnerable. Who are unvaccinated, and what that would mean is, for example, children, because that does give you sort of the opening that grandparents should be able to see grandchildren without spacing and and masking, because children are so low risk for COVID. And then two families together, well, if by extrapolation, two, uh, three or four kids together also are low risk if the parents are vaccinated. So I feel like it's really now coming down to everyone's personal comfort level, and I'm very interested in the fact that not surprised that people are still very fearful, even after being vaccinated. And what I'm trying to do is tell people, and so are other some other practitioners, please know how incredibly effective these vaccines are. I think they're miracles better than antiretroviral therapy. And that's saying a lot because antiretroviral therapy was the best thing that happened to me earlier as an HIV doctor, but because they're preventative and because they will get rid of the pandemic.
0: As a provider, To a large community of people who are vulnerable and who you know very, very well, I've met several of your patients there at Ward 86. Are you encountering much resistance or hesitancy about vaccines and how how do you engage with them?
1: I actually divide the vaccine hesitant into four groups that I'm wondering that I feel like they're very different reasons. And one is, you know, very commonly cited, but I think is still there, is the racial and ethnic minority communities' distrust of the medical system that was engendered by a very fair idea that we have not been trustworthy towards minority communities throughout the years. And that kind of distrust I find really easier to break down because these are different, vaccines are different, and also the minority communities have in this country been disproportionately affected. And so there it is really about community messaging, people talking to communities, doctors talking to communities who are of those communities, for example, education, making things easy, going to where people live, people are working, having nighttime hours for vaccinations, mobile vans. I feel like that from HIV, we've learned a lot about how to break down barriers there. And I have managed, except for one patient, to take that distrust, hold it, try to educate, really work through it. And only one person after we talked through it decided to still not take the vaccine. Everyone else took the vaccine. However, the other three groups are more interesting. And what I mean is interesting is I think there are different solutions. One is young. Like young, you know, their lives have been interrupted. They are not much at risk for COVID-19 as older people. And it's fair for them to say My whole kind of world was turned upside down this year. I will get the vaccine when I get it. And that is fair. And I think that means like youth campaigns, making it easy, nighttimes, weekends, college campuses, when the young are together, where it's easier for the young. The third group is, and I really mean this, and that's why I'm such on this kick about messaging optimism I think there are people who don't want to take it because they're like, you have not told me when we're out of masks. You have not told me when we're out of distancing. The UK you know, messaged this really clear campaign of lifting each set of restrictions, really clearly communicated that in actually in March to their whole population. This is when you're going to be out of masks. This is when you're going to be back in school. This is when. And they had this blueprint, they call it. And. People were looking forward to every lifting of restrictions here. We're all banding about when that is that going to be. It's completely confusing. And people are like, "I." when you motivate me like in a positive way and make me realize I get to go back to normal life. And so that is what I'm really trying to message is positive motivation. Because as an HIV doctor, I never used negative motivation to tell people, that they had to be obstinate or stay away from each other, I used positive motivation about PrEP and treatment as prevention and how you could have sex. So that works. That kind of proactive vaccine
0: optimism is working and reducing hesitancy.
1: I think it is because I, you know, the way I can say that publicly is that I hate tweeting actually, but I've been doing it since the pandemic because I think HIV doctors have a unique thing to say about COVID because we've been Working with the other great viral epidemic of our day, and so I feel it's important that HIV should be profoundly in the mix. HIV researchers and doctors, and there are people who are like, I went and got my vaccine because you said that we are going to get out of masks soon. I'm like, well, we are, and so good, great, thank you, good. I'm so glad you got it. And I think it's that positive that they're very effective, that life will go back to normal eventually, is very enhancing. And then the last group I think is people who are so recalcitrant that they've uh, there's some. Conspiracy around the vaccines. And that may be harder to get down, but I will say that Republican men, for example, messaging to Republicans, which they have been doing from the Senate, there have been many Republican senators who have um, messaged to their communities. I think it's very helpful if there's hesitancy in that group.
0: We've also been talking to folks. We had Dr. Uh, Brian Castrucci on last week, who's been working with the very well known Republican pollster, Frank Luntz. They've been doing these these focus groups. Really interesting what they're learning in terms of the emphasis on personal liberty, the distrust. Who do they listen to? Providers are a very trusted messenger for this population.
1: And in fact, it was that that got me my idea about the positive motivation and talking about end of restrictions because I saw Washington Post focus group with a group where they said, I'm not going to, if I have to get boosters, what's the point like of getting vaccinated now? And I was really surprised about the booster conversation because I feel like we don't know that yet. And I'm not sure scientifically that I'm convinced we're going to need boosters. And I don't think a pharmaceutical company can predict if we'll need boosters versus scientists. And so it was then that I realized that my job, at least in this group, was to talk about positive motivation. 92%
0: of people who get the two-dose regimen come back for the second dose. That's a remarkable number. Why is that? Why are we having that outcome?
1: I mean, I just thought that was astounding when I look at like how hard preventative care is and how hard it is to get people to come back for anything second. And I didn't think it'd be that high. So, I mean, I think that that really does speak to number one, people's desperation to get through the pandemic in this country. We've had a very difficult course. And I think that speaks to the messaging that, that these are how these, uh, these were designed. These clinical trials were designed to give two doses. mRNA vaccines are very effective and everyone wants their most effective shot. And then also, I think that after some logistical hurdles at the beginning, we did a really good job in this country about pharmacy output, uh, big uh, convention centers, places that are at your doctor's office. Like, we actually logistically took the challenge. And I do think this country rose to the challenge. I really liked when President Biden came on and did the pharmacy distribution, because everyone has a pharmacy in, in locally, you know, within, and I think it was April 19th that he said, yeah. So access,
0: familiarity, localized.
1: And also our our lines went away, right? Because that was the other thing is that the supply has been very ample after a while in the United States. This not at the beginning, but now very ample supply. In fact, so ample that hopefully we'll give some of our surplus away. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> People are
0: very confused about the recent guidance from CDC on personal travel. And I wanted to ask you to try and unpack that because it seems to me, and you've described the CDC's dilemma as they're, they're caught in a kind of whiplash between trying to be very positive about reopening, but also continuing to be cautionary. And it leaves people un- dissatisfied and confused.
1: Yeah, I do not envy the CDC's job, actually, because I think it's exactly what you just said. They're, they're trying to simultaneously out of one side of their mouth say, these are amazing vaccines. Please go get your vaccine. And we're going to get back to normal. You can travel and life is good. And then from the other side is be cautious. We still have cases circulating in the US. This is still a time to be careful. And that when you put those two together and it comes out in one sentence, it actually doesn't make sense. Um, so what I mean, and, and the way I've described it is like, You know that vaccinated people can travel. And in fact, that was messaged on April 2nd morning by the CDC to the United States. It was just right before Easter, so I remember it. And there was this message, yes, you can travel if you're fully vaccinated. And then in the afternoon, somehow they said, but don't travel. And it was really like a whiplash day. And I compare it to, uh, you know, your your child just got their driver's license and you know they can drive. It's just that like at 7 o'clock, you're like, of course you can have the car. Go, go, go. I mean, you got your license, you're a safe driver. And then at 7.05, oh my gosh, no, I can't let you go. <laughs> I, I think it's, it, it's a hard job to message caution and optimism simultaneously. Unfortunately, it has made the CDC guidance, to be honest, very confusing. And I think even last week was an example with the outside mask guidance. And a lot of us said, you know, outside transmission is very low. You may want to message something much more simple than this for vaccinated and unvaccinated, unless you're in a packed crowd, you don't have to mask outside. But they went with a very kind of complicated color coding system that people were wearing masks a lot and they were red and yellow. And and, and I know it was meant to be helpful, but I think uh, it left a lot of people confused. Uh, this will get better. This will get better. It'll It'll get clearer as more of us get vaccinated.
0: Partly a reflection of this complicated transition that we're in.
1: We're in a transition. And that's actually why... The other thing to message I think is compassion. Like you will have people who are fully vaccinated who are still very concerned about resuming normal life and won't go to the gym or won't go to a restaurant with you. And there are people who have been waiting to go. And I think we're just navigating these like, we just have to have compassion for each other. We're all gonna come out of it at different stages.
0: You've spoken out pretty forcefully also about the need for a more rational approach to reopening schools. You've put a focus on the data that's used as the basis for recommendations. and Tell us a bit more about that.
1: Yes, you know, there are pandemic response documents dating back from the WHO for many eons, <laughs> for a long time, that school closures are the things we should do the least. Why? Because schools are fundamentally the places where low-income children actually sometimes get food. They get food stamps, they get ability to be there where their parents have to go to work, and fundamentally, this is also a place where children socialize, they need other children, and uh, it can be very damaging to close schools for prolonged periods. This has been in every pandemic document you'll see from eons on. And yet, in this country, and I'm not sure all the reasons why, we... In many places, and I, I maybe I'm talking about it a lot because I live in a state that has the worst record on school openings, California, where the bottom of the 50 states in terms of number of children back in in-person learning, despite having the lowest case rates in the nation, despite having high rates of vaccination, and despite in some cities like San Francisco never actually, luckily, being over flooded with, with COVID. It's complicated. I think it's political. I think that we're not looking at data cleanly. The CDC has very clean, publicly available databases where you can actually, if you want a message that the question, are children, are hospitalizations increasing in Michigan among children with a B117 variant, which was claimed, all you have to do is go to the publicly available database, do the data analysis yourself. And that wasn't happening. And we put out a paper in Stat News a week and a half ago now on that. I am saddened by what we did with kids. And I think that every other country, and we got to be fair about this, UK and Europe just somehow decided that they were going to prioritize school openings over other openings. First, prioritize children and their schools have been much more open, if you look at the area under the curve, than, than we. And I hope that later we come to understand that hopefully this never happens again.
0: Let's shift to talk a bit more about the outbreak. Obviously, people are seized with the horrible things that are happening in India. I wanted to ask you to comment a bit on that. There's also the widening divergence between the Western wealthy countries that are sitting on the greatest stockpiles of, of the best vaccines versus the low- and middle-income countries. That gap is widening, it's becoming highly contested terrain and there's lots of calls for accelerated tech transfer and manufacturing expansion. There's been calls for suspending intellectual patent rights and the like. This is not unlike what we went through with HIV in the late nineties, early naught decade, and you had ARTs rolled out, antiretrovirals rolled out in ninety six, right? Becoming available. Yes. It wasn't till five or six years later that we had arrangements in place to bring affordable, safe, and mass volumes of ARTs to where they were most needed in Southern Eastern Africa and many other places. That was a long, torturous fight and a long, torturous process.
1: And all of us in that fight, yeah, yeah.
0: Tell us how you're seeing this current situation.
1: Yes, I mean, it. it just like you, because you've been in the AIDS movement a long time. The echoes of what happened in HIV are haunting me right now with COVID-19 in India, because uh, as you know, the, the World Trade Organization TRIPS Agreement was actually put into place in 1995 that said that if there's a medical emergency, we need to rethink intellectual property in the setting of a medical emergency for a product. And actually, India and South Africa appealed to the WTO in October of 2020, saying, look, we uh We want a temporary waiver of these patents or whatever it takes for us to get more vaccine production. And they said that before their terrible second wave that's happening right now in India with 400,000 new cases a day, uh, more than 3,600 deaths a day. It is tragic and heartbreaking and terrible to see this, especially since India anticipated and asked for this question of mRNA vaccines and other vaccines being made available more quickly. The UN Secretary General said in February, this is our biggest moral test if we can make vaccine equity available because as these other countries were getting their vaccines and doing well, and now we're talking about, like we just talked about the return to normal here, return to normal in UK, Israel. But it seems so ironic to talk about the return to normal when the epidemic is out of control in India. All I can think of is there's two ways in terms of the fastest things to do, which is like you just mentioned, we do have surplus. The uh, country bought a lot of excess doses. We know how much it takes to vaccinate our adult population and we can do the calculation and give those to COVAX, which is a way to distribute vaccine surplus doses. I know we gave the AstraZeneca 60 million doses, but boy, India has 1.37 billion people. And then the second, and and it is about, you know, the patent waivers, because it reminds me of what you just said, that it was so painful to watch so many people die in Sub-Saharan Africa of HIV during the late nineties, early two thousands, when all we were seeing in this country. And I was going back and forth, you know, between India and here. I mean, meaning I worked in India during that time and then I worked in San Francisco and I would see people just do so well with the antiretrovirals here and not have access to those antiretrovirals anywhere that was poor, which is actually where the bulk of people living with HIV were. And it was so painful and hard to see. And it took all of us. Advocating and advocating and advocating in India, making the Cipla product that led to $350 a year, a triple ART regimen that, that got, um, ARV therapy down to a dot less than a dollar a day. Remember, India did that. So just when we're thinking about India. And finally, ART access opened up, even though, like, we all need to remember 26 million people right now of the 38 million people living with HIV worldwide are on ART, which means we still are missing, uh, 12 million. So yes, I, I think it re, it's hitting me so hard. All I did over the weekend was write this paper on this that just thinking like, let's like not debate this too much. And I know the trade commissioner is looking at this very hard for us to figure out whatever it takes, voluntary licensure, waiving of patents, I, I, whatever the fastest way to get manufacturing up and getting vaccine to the rest of the world.
0: I want to ask you a question about the community that you serve that's living with HIV and how has the... COVID-19 impacted that community. I mean, you're very, very close to all of the people that you serve. They share the details of their lives with you. How disruptive and damaging has this pandemic been to their lives?
1: You know, it has been really terrible. And as someone said to me, a fellow provider, they said, I have never seen Ward 86 so sad. And I was there at the beginning of Ward 86. And what that means is this kind of loneliness that ended up happening in the context of a respiratory virus where we told people to stay away from one another. If you do not have, and I serve a very vulnerable population, a more socioeconomically deprived population in the city of San Francisco, Without the means to figure out how to be around people in a safe way, there has been a lot of loneliness, a lot of stigma, a lot of remembering what it felt like in the '80s that you need, you were told somehow to stay away from people, and that was the only way to keep safe. I'm really against our abstinence-only approach in the United States and many other places. To instead of a harm reduction approach would be, which would be like, okay. These are masks, these are distancing, this is ventilation, let me tell you how to keep safe, but it doesn't mean that you can't see anyone for a year. We had a much more kind of non-nuanced, stay-at-home approach, and it was lonely. It was so lonely. And because of that, we have had a lot of increases of substance use or a lot of relapses that we had not seen for a while. And actually the number of overdose deaths in San Francisco are three times the number of COVID deaths during the entire pandemic. So we kept a lot of people safe from COVID, and that was an admirable thing that happened in San Francisco. But the fundamental loneliness that accompanied a response that keeps people away from each other had untold sort of mental health effects. That's why I'm messaging optimism. I'm saying, please go see your friend. You're vaccinated, I know you're vaccinated. Please go and and be around each other. We need to heal some of this, what it felt like for people because they remembered the stigma of HIV and it felt stigmatizing to tell everyone to keep away from each other.
0: San Francisco, I mean. And you've been in San Francisco for 25 years, right?
1: Yes, yes, 26 years, yes.
0: This is your home and your community. And early in the COVID-19 outbreak, San Francisco was seen as a model of response. Very good data, good testing, good community relations, good local leadership. And then it's like many areas in the country suffered some setbacks. And much of California went through a very difficult period. But now we look at California's as a whole has recovered remarkably well. And the Bay Area is reopening at a very brisk pace.
1: Yes, you know, I think our success was the vaccination rate in California. The restrictions were hard on people and they had varying effect rates, meaning sometimes we close the outdoors when that's more safe and we definitely didn't do a great job with schools. So we had a more restrictive approach here, but the best thing that we did really was vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. And San Francisco right now has a 70% first vaccination rate. That's higher than Israel. And that is amazing. And it has to do with education and logistics and messaging to community. And it is, if we have 20 cases in a city of 900,000, and we can't budge past that, meaning we are not going up even as we're opening with cases. So that really shows you the power of the vaccines. So I do think vaccines are getting us out of it here and they will and I think they will actually get the nation out of it, but it will take different degrees and trust and, and working on it.
0: My sister Julie lives in Sonoma and lived in the Bay Area for the last three and a half decades. I was, I was speaking with her about this phenomenon and she was saying, look, these, this is a population that listens to public health officials and trusts them. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes, I think that it's a very compliant population in terms of public health. That is really fair and does have trust. And there's academic and public health partnerships that are really helpful that were forged through HIV that came about here. And I think that's absolutely right. California is very diverse, but in the Bay Area, it's been quite uniform.
0: I expect, as you've sort of referenced, that the history of the 1980s epidemic in San Francisco and what grew out of that has to be coloring the response, much like you can argue that Taiwan and South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong went through the searing experience, SARS and pandemic flu and MERS that drove them into that pivoting to create another kind of public health, health security approach. Something similar seems to have happened in San Francisco.
1: Yes, I think that's true, and I really can't stress enough how we haven't been prey to a pandemic like what you just said about SARS, but we have been prey to another epidemic, um, which is HIV. And so when I think about the United States, I think our HIV experience of anything that I can think of should be informing our COVID experience, and that happened here as well.
0: You've already told us that you were inherently... Deeply optimistic person, <laughs> which is great. So what, as you look out now, what gives you the greatest hope for the future?
1: What gives me the greatest hope is that we're actively having discussions about how to get vaccine to Indiana in a way that it took us um, longer than it did in HIV. The second thing that gives me hope is when I watch two places that are going faster than we, which is Israel and the UK, 63% and 52% first dose respectively. They are, have such low cases. They Zero deaths in Israel, seven deaths in the UK. Yesterday, they are really, really cases, hospitalizations, deaths are plummeting. Vaccinations get you there. They're going to get us here. We're still in an intermediary period, but I promise we'll get out of this. And you can even use the word containment. You can use the word herd immunity. These vaccines are too amazing to not think we're not gonna get out of it. They are very effective. Monica, thank you so much. Thank you very
0: much. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Ulver, and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.